human beings are complex. And so if you're allowed to have a complex, you know, sometimes you could call it complicated narrative, then that's an acknowledgement of your full humanity as opposed to the stereotypes that I think mostly obtain, especially when we're talking about the vast and diverse continent of Africa. So when you think about systems change, one of the most important, I think, building block elements of changing a global system is changing the way that we think about narratives from the continent of Africa, which means changing the way that we think about Africa and its peoples, both on the continent and around the world. Traditional corporate practices got us to a life-threatening climate and unjust society. Changing this trajectory needs bold solutions from diverse thinkers. Welcome to Impact Reimagined, the podcast that helps you discover and envision a future where humanity's greatest problems are solved. I am Dr. Noah Gaffney, Executive Director of the Rutgers Institute for Corporate Social Innovation and your host. From the time we are born, we are fed different narratives or stories about the world we live in. You might have heard the phrase, history is written by the victors, meaning the stories we are told are often told through a subjective lens rather than grounded in facts. Yet these stories shape our beliefs and our beliefs shape our reality. Uzodinma Awila thinks that if we are to positively change society, we must first examine our narratives. Uzo is the author of three books and the CEO of the Africa Center. The Africa Center is a U.S.-based organization that engages with contemporary Africa through culture, policy, and business. Today, Uzo and I chat about the ways our narratives and history influence our relationship with the continent. We also speak of an alternative, more equal way of relating, one that uses innovation to solve today's global challenges. Uzo spent his childhood going back and forth from the U.S. and Nigeria, where his family comes from. I have always written from the time I was really young. And writing, reading, that was just something that has been with me. You know, obviously in my family, we read a lot. I remember going to the library with my siblings, my father, during the summers, and we would just get all kinds of books, and it would almost be a bit of a competition. But there's also just this really strange fascination with paper, I think, from a very early age. And then from there, it's like, well, what can you do with the paper? And then what stories can you tell? Obviously, if you've got to fill the paper up with something. So from telling really silly stories, I think, when I was much younger, to moving into writing longer things, and finally, you know, the combination of reading and writing and recognizing that there's a way of shaping the world through literature through books. I think that's kind of where that all started for me as a writer. Now, obviously, this is me at 40, looking back and trying to form a coherent narrative of something that happened very early on. I'm not sure that I actually knew what I was doing back then, but that's the genesis of the writing life. And I think stories are really, really important. And for me, a way of, have always been and are still a way of ordering the world and helping to find an understanding or a sense of understanding in a world that can often feel very, very chaotic. After getting a degree in American literature, Uzo went to medical school and began working in public health. 
ended up working for the UN and then for the Ministry of Health in Nigeria for a little bit. Did that, realized that this is cool. I think I've done what I can possibly do. But, you know, I learned a lot in doing that work. Saw a lot about how systems work for and also against providing for people. And then decided to move into entrepreneurship. So my uncle and I started this media platform in Nigeria called Ventures Africa. Did that for a while. And then was actually recruited to come and help build this behemoth of a project we have called the Africa Center. The Africa Center, located in New York, is a hub for the exchange of ideas related to Africa. And for me, that's really tied to a lot of things in terms of my whole career path and shape, which is one, very much focused on the conference of Africa and its diaspora. Two, it's about narrative and narrative transformation, then really thinking about how you shift the way that people talk about, think about, speak about the continent, how it was, how it is now, where it's going. And then three, really this idea of wanting to be involved in something that is fundamentally a creative enterprise. You know, if you're building an institution from the ground up, that's a fundamentally creative endeavor. It is like staring at a blank page and saying, what can I do here? And I often say to people, I would be the exact wrong person to take over an institution that is more established because then you've got systems and processes and it's more about how do those keep running? And that's not to say that's not creative. And there are people who are exceedingly good at that. I'm just not one of those people. So what I love about that is it's really about the mission and the systems, right? In terms of systems change and narrative creation and making sure that it's creative and meaningful, right? So tell us a little bit about that intersection between storytelling, enterprise, and systemic change, particularly as it relates to Africa. And I guess for me, the question is really around, you know, we talk a lot about Africa, but Africa is a very diverse continent. And so how are you thinking about changing the narrative around that as well as the overall narrative in the continent more broadly? You know, I don't know. I mean, I think there are multiple ways of thinking about this. And I, I really appreciate you're talking about the diversity of such a big continent with so many different stories, so many different narratives, and this tendency to lump or to think about like there is an African narrative when I think about the continent and what I often say in the work that I do is that it's about complexity. It's about first and foremost foregrounding that, that a continent in general, especially the African continent, is a construction of complex and interacting systems, which means you have complex and interacting narratives. On a very basic level, the way that I put it is, it's not about narratives that are all super positive and rosy. It's certainly not about narratives that are all extremely negative, which tends to be what we have seen in the past and still very much now, although you can see and sense that transformation. What it really is, is about complex narratives. And the reason I emphasize that so much is because human beings are complex. And so if you're allowed to have a complex, you know, sometimes you could call it complicated narrative, then that's an acknowledgement of your full humanity as opposed to the stereotypes that I think mostly obtain, especially when we're talking about the vast and diverse continent of Africa. So when you think about systems change, one of the most important, I think, building block elements of changing a global system is changing the way that we think about 
narratives from the continent of Africa, which means changing the way that we think about Africa and its peoples, both on the continent and around the world. Like Uzo notes, narratives affect systems. For example, views around conflict in different places influence foreign funding. What's very interesting to me is if you start listening to the ways that people talk about fighting or conflict in one part of the world, Ukraine. So they're talking about what was happening in Bakhmut, first of all, and now the potential spring offensive, probably now summer offensive, and this idea of like, it's going to be super complicated and sophisticated, combined arms, this, that, and the third. And all of a sudden you're talking about one set of people or one conflict as technologically advanced. And then you talk about conflicts on the continent of Africa, take Sudan or any other place as essentially savage, lawless, without reason. Already you've got two very different ways of speaking of exactly the same thing, which is people are killing people at base, right? And people are, have decided that the use of force is a way to resolve the conflict. Why is to resolve an issue or disagreement? Why is it in one place that all of a sudden, you know, these people are sophisticated in their use and these geopolitical issues really matter? And in another place, it's basically savages destroying each other for no reason. And that's something that I think, you know, it's a negative example, but for me, it highlights if you were to change the way that you thought about these conflicts on the continent and say like, no, these are real globally important, right? Systemically relevant with real people like that is complicated or complex people who are humans involved. Would you have a different approach to so many other things? $100 billion worth of arms and aid given to Ukraine. How much money has been given to help deal with certain issues on the continent? And again, I understand they're not one-to-one comparisons, but I think you have to make that and you have to push people in that direction of understanding to see how absurd the constructs we've created are. So if you want to talk about systems change or systemic change when it comes to the continent, you have to start at that base level of what are the stories we're telling about these places. Being from Nigeria, a country with a colonial history, Uzo reflects on how our views about the past shape our present. I think about this in terms of narrative, and I will credit my mother with really putting this seed in my head. The story I often tell is about being um, with her in the UK And in the UK, you're surrounded by all these amazingly ornate monumental buildings. And I said to her, you know, this is what we need in Nigeria. We need some of this monumental architecture to develop a sense of cohesion in place. And she just looked at me and she said, you know, we paid for all of this. Mm. So if you now start to think of it that way, India is really pushing this narrative as well, because they really did finance so much of what makes the West, and I'll say the West, Britain as proxy for that, quote unquote, great. The continent of Africa, the various territories, or we'll call them countries now, did do that. And there are ways to think of it as, oh, well, you know, we came, we saw, we conquered. That's one narrative. There's another way to think of it, which is these countries, my country, Nigeria, which didn't exist at the time, but does now, or any one of these places, essentially gave the United Kingdom or gave France or whatever other European country that came in and did what they did, gave what is essentially a zero interest loan. So you had all this capital now on which you were able to build these societies and make more money. And the places that you took the money from are now saying, hey, look, you know, it's time to repay that money that we gave you. That's one way of thinking of this relationship, which is not a, oh, these Africans need to be helped or there's a fundamentally equal relationship. We had something, we 
gave it to you. Now we're asking for that thing back. You know, and again, I say that recognizing that there's the reality of the world that we live in, but you can shape that reality with the stories you tell about things. So if you talk about climate, for example, and, and I'll get back to, to colonialism, the colonial enterprise has to factor into that, but it can't factor into it as, I think, in the ways that we talk about it, which are a bit reductive and also perhaps maybe not helpful in some of the wealthier capitals of the world. If you speak in terms that people understand, and I think someone like Mia Motley down in Barbados is doing this now with the whole Bridgetown Initiative, where let's talk in financial terms of financial terms of what you understand. Uzo is referring to the efforts by Mia Motley, the Prime Minister of Barbados. She is advocating for a climate crisis plan where wealthier nations and global financial institutions support poorer ones. That's one way of shifting the conversation. And the financial terms relate directly back to that extraction and exchange of resources during colonial times. Okay, let's take that as a basis for discussion and update it to some of the issues and the challenges we're facing now and see how we reframe those discussions. So, you know, that's where I start again with this idea of system change or narrative transformation. But when it comes to colonialism, the bottom line is we still are not telling stories that make sense from anybody's perspective. You go to the United Kingdom and you have people talking about the colonial enterprise was great. You know, great for who? I mean, great for y'all. <laughs> for a lot of people around the world, that, that was not a pleasant or rewarding experience. Just like Motley, many are revisiting harmful narratives to change our reality. Uzo believes that instead of pointing fingers, we have an opportunity to remedy our past through innovation. Just go through the comments on any article written about climate in any one of the major Western newspapers, and it will not take you more than 10 comments before you get to, well, the real problem is these people in these poor countries are just having too many children. Like the world is overpopulated and we just can't sustain this much life. What does that suggest to you from the very beginning? For me, it leads to a very dark place very quickly. But again, it's this idea of we do not want to take responsibility for what has happened. The burden should always be yours and the benefit should always be ours. And what's happening, and I think is really important, is two things. One, folks really saying, no, the burden shouldn't be ours. It shouldn't be ours at all. Like the burden for dealing with the situation should be yours. The issue that's adjoined to this is the fact that a lot of folks who are feeling the burden don't have the power to enforce the people who've created the problem taking responsibility for it. That's one. But then two, also there's this new narrative of let's find creative and interesting solutions. So stop talking to me about an adaptation and mitigation fund, right, for $100 billion. And let's start talking about real investment opportunities that are transformative, right? Think about the continents, $4 trillion of possible investment and gains that could completely transform the global economy, make things more equitable, make things more environmentally friendly, make things better for the whole entire world. If we talk about it that way, is that a different pathway towards relationships, partnerships, again, changing the world that we live in than saying, well, there's going to be disasters, you know, y'all in Mozambique or everybody in, you know, wherever in, in Chad or Niger and Northern Nigeria, you guys are just screwed because of desertification or hurricanes or whatever. Here's like $20 million to deal with whatever nonsense has happened there. And also don't come to us, like make sure whatever happens, do not vote with your feet, just stay where you are. 
because you're going to mess up the way that we live over here. What sense does that make? It makes no sense. It makes no sense because one, it's inhumane, but two, you'll also never be able to stop it unless you are actually prepared to just kill everybody who decides to vote with their feet to keep them out of your place, which is a terrifying thought, but I'm not entirely sure that people aren't prepared to do this, right? That unless you're prepared to literally kill everyone or let them all drown in the sea, then you don't actually have a real solution to the problems. For Uzo, reframing the narrative in this case would be seeing the opportunity Africa brings to solve climate change. So when people are speaking about reframing narratives, when people are speaking about reframing the way you think about the continent as a destination of investment, when people are talking about, look, actually on the continent, so many countries use renewable energy sources already as their primary power source or means of power generation. Let's augment that. Let's invest in that. Let's see what we can do to make that the case across the entirety of the continent and also make sure that the people who live in energy poverty have access to energy, but maybe not in the same way, maybe not by burning coal or gas or oil or whatever it is they're doing in Germany now or the UK to deal with the lack of Russian gas in their energy supply mix. If we think about it that way, do we not have a more viable and altogether more pleasant path towards a totally transformed world? I think we do. The issue is that people don't want to let go of narratives that affirm their superiority and their right to behave a certain way and embrace narratives that might result in a shifting of the way they have to think about themselves. We've already had to, on the continent, think about ourselves in multiple fashions. We have to deal with the fact that right now we're an underdog that we don't have all the power in the world. And what does that do to your mentality, the way that you see yourself and how you move through the world? And we also have to live every day with self-affirming narratives that are not tied to material wealth. You wake up every day, you know, I happen to be somebody of intense privilege, but you're talking about folks around the continent who don't, who have to wake up every day and affirm their right to exist every single day versus folks who take that existence for granted and just assume that the world is created for them. If you have to do that double work, it's exhausting for a lot of people, but it also means that you have a very different and altogether more complex way of seeing the world. At the end of the day, it all comes down to the stories we tell ourselves. There is a certain element of needing to face up to the truth and to think about how one constructs a reality. And I say a reality because it's very clear that in certain parts of the world, again, we'll talk about the West, like folks have constructed a reality that has no basis in actual reality. So in this reality, slavery wasn't really a thing or it wasn't as detrimental and damaging as it was. Colonialism was a positive for the rest of the world. And what are you all complaining about? And it's like, you can do that, but you do that at your own peril because at some point in time, it's going to come back to bite you. And what we're actually seeing is that happening. And whether that's the effects of all of the massive industrialization and development that we paid for that you guys have done and have now built wonderful lives for most of your citizens and people has come at the cost of the environment and again at the expense of people in other parts of the world who will have to move and most likely move into places that are better resourced and more protected. If you are trying to act like that is not a direct result of actions in the past, you're fooling yourself and you're not preparing yourself or everyone else to deal with this sort of situation in an orderly and hopefully beneficial fashion, thinking through what you can build for the future, for everyone's future, including your own. Let's talk about China for a second. So how has the Chinese influence on the continent 
changed the narrative in the United States. Has it moved the needle at all? Having a bit of competition, if you would say? I think it, it has, and, and I think it has, but not in a way that I necessarily think is the most productive, which is to say, and I've said this to folks before, which is, if you are from the United States and the first word out of your mouth after the word Africa is China, and the third word is competition, the people that you are speaking to know that you don't have a care in the world about them. Your concern is somewhere else. And so it's like, you want me to be on your side to help you, but you only need me as a tool and not you're not dealing with me again as a human, as a complex, actual human. You're not really building the basis for a real discussion, a real partnership where this person will actually go to bat for you. So it plays out actually pretty interestingly. It's like, you only reference African countries when you need something from them in terms of, you know, how do we form uh, alliances against China? How do we think about allying against Russia? Folks are going to be like, I don't have time for this. Like right now, you guys have created a problem over there that's impacting us. Fertilizer shipments are down. Grain shipments are down. You're causing the price of food to rise all over the world. And you want me to come out and support you. I don't have anything to do with that conflict, right? If I'm the president of Kenya or I'm the president of Rwanda or whatever, like that's not my problem. And yet somehow it's my problem. And you want me to go to bat for you to solve that problem when you won't go to bat for me on a regular basis, except to say it's to kick these other people out. That's on the top level. First thing. So people need to recalibrate and think about that relationship. And it has to be one where it's not oh, I'm doing this because I'm trying to exert my influence against China, but I'm doing this because I actually need to be in partnership with you. That's the first thing. The second thing is you then get into these more technical issues around trade sanctions dealings, right? The United States doesn't want folks to deal with Chinese companies like Huawei, but equipment from the West is hugely expensive and no one's helping to pay for it. Whereas like if you're doing telecoms equipment, Huawei is a cheap equipment is cheaper and, you know, there's financing for it. Who are you going to go with, right? What choice? But then you can't actually do that because if you do that, you run afoul of U.S. sanctions. So what do you want us to do? You want us to just sit here and not develop or not do anything. So those kinds of things in real world examples are, and like tangible examples are very problematic when it comes to the way that folks here think about Africa and its relationship to China. And none of these countries are vassal states. These countries will work in their own best interests. And if you're not providing a real viable alternative to what the Chinese are providing, even if what the Chinese are providing isn't great, it's still something to work with. We still have a lot of work to do to rewrite history and be more inclusive. But Uzo remains hopeful. I'm hopeful in general because I think you're starting to see a whole new set of voices with the ability to speak their minds and speak on platforms that are not filtered or as filtered as before. I think that's really important. I think there's so much creativity when it comes to the continent and the diaspora. People who are saying, we're not just going to sit here. The world has so many challenges. Those challenges are material. Those challenges are economic. Those challenges are even creative in and of themselves. Like, how do you think about and render the world this rapidly changing world? And people are stepping up to the challenge. And when I see all these different, whether it's film, music or books, you know, it makes me want to like really throw my hat in the ring again and sit down and say like, well, how can I participate? How can I be nourished by all these people and their really interesting ideas? And how can I also maybe nourish with my own creativity? 
one of the things that makes me really hopeful or excited is this idea that this change is inevitable, that this change is happening, that the order that we have known, and I have to say that I have benefited for most of my life, will not stand. And again, the question is, is that going to be orderly or disorderly? And I think there are a lot of folks who are saying, look, this isn't going to stand. You know, we have to think about different ways and systems of doing this. And we want to do this in an orderly, mutually beneficial fashion. Nobody wants to see the demise of the United States or Europe. You know, people don't want to see these places in abject poverty or anything like that. What people want is for recalibration of unfair systems that have benefited so few at the expense of so many, especially that's true on the continent. And I think people are working towards that. Questioning our narratives and uncovering harmful beliefs is the first step towards positive change in business or otherwise. I hope today's conversation got you thinking about what your unconscious biases might be and what you can do to address those. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to Impact Reimagined so you don't miss out on new episodes. Please also rate and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for joining us and I'll catch you all in the next episode. Impact Reimagined is produced by the Rutgers Institute for Corporate Social Innovation and Human Group Media. If you want to learn more about our work at Rutgers, visit rixie.business.rutgers.edu.